0: I didn't really um, access TV for a number of years for two reasons. Firstly, because I want to be creating content, not watching it. So I couldn't watch it. It was like the, mo- the biggest waste of time in my head. And then also in the early years of children, it like didn't really work as well. Anyway, so I am late to the party with a number of shows that everyone's excited about. I'm literally late to the party on so many between about 2008 and 2018. But loving traitors. Anyone discovered that? Yes. Gripped. Gripped. And if anyone doesn't know um, anything about traitors, it's basically mafia in the Scottish castle. Anyone know what mafia is? This isn't the time or place to start going into the instructions, is it? Um, but what, it's such an astute analysis of the human condition because it, it shows this conflict between wanting to win at all costs and yet this kind of sense of conscience that we don't want to violate in order to win at all costs. And these two kinds of humans is what God, Jesus seems to be presenting in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 to 7. And this is the opposite um, of the Beatitudes or the blessings. Um, The Bible Project are doing every week this year. They're sitting in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's just incredibly rich, rich resource. Really recommend everyone to listen to them and everyone they recommend. And one of the things that I found really helpful is they use the word the good life rather than blessed or Beatitude. Because that doesn't really mean anything to us but the word, the good life, does. And this is the opposite. So I've written the opposite of what the, the three triads, the nine Beatitudes are, that I think represent what Jesus was teaching in the first century in the Middle East, in Greco-Roman culture, in heavily religious Judaism, but also in the 21st century now in the West. There's this same kind of worldliness, this same spirit, that is transcendent in the human condition. The good life is found in being self-sufficient. The good life is found in feeling good. The good life is found in being self-confident. The good life is found in not caring too much. Really want to hone in on that one, particularly today. The good life is found in avenging wrongs. The good life is found in self gratification The good life is found in divide and rule. The good life is found in being popular. The good life is found in people speaking well of you. So in Jesus, the context he's teaching to a community of people who were not the religious elite of their own community, and their own community, the Jewish people, were under Roman oppression. So he could have easily been speaking a message to the oppressed about trauma. Couldn't he? That's exactly the lens through which we could and he could be reading them. But he didn't stop there. He went, he gave them agency. He honoured their dignity in, in the presumption that they too had a vision of the good life. We can often patronise the oppressed, whoever they are, by assuming the good life only it doesn't really count. But What I love about the, the doctrine of sin is it basically gives us all agency. We're all accountable, doesn't matter what situation we're in, to follow Jesus or not. We have free will, we have agency. And so he speaks to them a very similar word that he would speak to us, which is quite extraordinary. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he, one of the things that people critique it, they say it's idealist. It's not for now, it's for another place, it's a utopian idea. But if you look at what he's talking about, it is absolutely the guts of everyday life for everyone. So I'm just going to give a little kind of overview of the kind of humanity he's addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. People then and now value success, strength and superiority. People turn a blind eye away from poverty, grief and the hard work of reconciliation. People are filled with contempt for stupid people. They love objectifying images and people to meet their own sexual fantasies and love judging others. We, as humans, we want to avenge wrongs, divorce an irritating spouse, win lawsuits. We love to show off our ethical practices of ecological care, intermittent fasting, disciplined habit stacking and philanthropy, whilst also pursuing relentless self-indulgence, the accumulation of food, money and clothes at any cost. We love money, believing it's the source of protection, provision and identity, but are relentlessly gripped by the fear that there is never enough to go around. People don't want to have to contend for change. They want an easy path to life, marked by self-gratification, soothed by a culture that affirms all this behaviour with a great big thumbs up. You do you. Look out for number one and make sure you get in some me time in your hard, privileged Western life. This is the old nature. It always has been and always will be. And I love that Jesus always gives people the dignity of acknowledging that people have nature and agency. Everyone's image bearing. Everyone needs restoration. Everyone needs to transition from the old dislocated, disconnected, orphaned human nature into the connected, loving, relational, connected human nature that deeply knows we're loved by God. That's the great healing And so we're doing 10 teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, looking once a month at different aspects of this old new nature dynamic. So we hit the final teaching, looking at these two images of life. One of them is a community of people that hear Jesus' teachings but don't put it into practice. And when the storms come, their house collapses. And another is an image of a community of people who hear the teachings of Jesus. And when the storms and trials of life come, they stand on the rock. The reason we know it's for this age and now is because storms won't come in the new creation. They come now. Storms and trials and difficulties come now. And he wants to build a community of people that can stand when the storms come, and he's going to show us exactly how to do it. We will look at the fact he's building, he uses the image of a city on a hill. This is a polis from which the word we get is politics or political. Jesus is king. Doesn't really resonate in a constitutional monarchy. We don't really understand that compared to the ancient world where they had the law of life and death. Jesus is Lord, as Caesar was. Jesus is saviour, as Caesar, Caesar was. Maybe Jesus is prime minister. Jesus is president. Jesus is governor. Jesus is mayor. Jesus is the leader of a citizenship where everyone flourishes and it demands full allegiance. These are political terms he's using. All the way through all the New Testament writers are not using other worldly utopian terms. They're using deeply political terms. You don't get killed for being otherworldly. You get killed for saying there's a better way through citizenship under this kind of leadership, this governor, this governance. So we're looking at two visions of the good life. And they're basically transcendent. They're all culturally rooted I will never, ever ignore, we always read, culture is king, we always read cultural context. But ultimately, wherever you go in the world, every human grapples with two visions for the good life. One of them is the way of Jesus, and one of them is the way of self. So we've been looking at how Jesus, teaching in Luke on the state of humanity, When he comments, walk walk with me here, on two extremely traumatic, destructive narratives from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the destruction through flood in the time of Noah and the destruction through fire of Sodom and Gomorrah in the time of Lot, Jesus is chilling in his analysis. He never once focuses on the violence that the, the Genesis writers talk about. All the corruption that was spread over the whole earth, it says, in the time of Noah. He simply describes the the times as self-focused. It's innocuous, almost innocent, like, what's all the fuss about? He says in Luke 17, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. What were they doing in the days of Noah? Were they killing each other so that blood cried out from the ground? It just says they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. I can't hear any violence there or corruption that would trigger a flood of purification. Goes on to Lot. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Isn't that just normal human life? Isn't that what we want for ourselves? To plant, to build, to buy, to sell, to marry, give and marry, eat and drink. On the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur, this is the words of Jesus, rained down and destroyed them all. In other words, there's a way of life, the self-life, that is so utterly self-focused that it cannot hear any distress. It is buffered itself so well with wealth and privilege and security, military, ideological, personal, that it can buy and sell, marry and give in marriage, eat and drink. And have no idea that the whole thing's about to come crashing down. This is such an astute analysis of the way the world actually is. And the way the world's history always plays out. Those are Genesis narratives. Jesus comments on them. There is another prophet that also comments on Sodom. He's called Ezekiel later on in the Hebrew Bible. Before Jesus. He... Yahweh is going deeper with him to call out what was going on beneath the surface of the sexual violence we see in Noah and Sodom, of the Jesus's analysis of eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. He says, Ezekiel, he kind of bridges the gap between Jesus and Genesis. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. The good life is found in not caring too much, just unconcerned. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. This is Yahweh's voice through the prophet Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50, and it was Luke 17, Jesus's chilling depiction of the self-life. A friend of mine, who I've asked permission to share this phrase with, is a consultant psychiatrist in child and adolescent mental health, talks about the communications of distress. Friends who are doctors, who are working, like friends like Susie, who are working around mental health with digital technology, Claire, Claire, who's connecting with nurturing the health of young people, Sam and Dylan, who are concerned about young, care, young people in, in, in and out of the care system, friends who are making incredibly brave and courageous decisions to hear the cries of the poor, particularly want to honour those amongst us who have actually gone down the route of adoption or care or foster care or in some way connecting in the deepest way possible with hearing those cries. Two things happened to me in my life. These were two moments. One of them was I went with a friend to the red light district in Amsterdam when I was twenty with a ministry and me and a friend, through this ministry could sit in the room of, of a woman who is in the sex industry and be with her and um, I think someone brought in some music and some conversation. I didn't know, I, I found out then that um, a lot of these women at that time in Amsterdam were trafficked from South America, being told that they were going to have a better life in the West. And when they came here, the kind of terms and conditions meant they would never, ever, unless there were interventions, escape the life of being a sex worker. I went back home and I lay in bed as I was lying in bed at night. I remember that moment of there are two ways to do life. We can remember that some people are crying right now. Some people are distressed. Or we can just go, I cannot go there. It's too hard. It's too much. I'm just going to buffer my self-life. I'm going to marry and give in marriage. I'm going to buy and sell. I'm going to plant and build. Dan absolutely nailed it with the light of the world. Light matters where there's darkness. doesn't matter where there's light. And it, it, I don't know what decision I made. I just knew there were two ways to do life. Again, at university, um, we had lots of different colleges and they had these very smart balls you could go to and they were very expensive. And a way you could get into the ball without paying money, which is obviously the aim, why would you pay money? Because always get stuff for free, was a friend of mine worked out if you could do a job in the ball, this like smart black tie ball, then you could get in for free. So my friend found a job which was giving out champagne. If we gave out champagne at the beginning we could do our job and then we'd be in the ball and enjoy the party without having to pay. And essentially, with, with there was so much champagne that basically people said, look, just give people bottles, give people bottles of champagne. And I remember giving people bottles and I had that other moment of like, some of you who know me well might laugh a bit at this, but this is how my brain works. This is exactly the moment of the French Revolution when the Queen said, let them eat cakes. And there were people starving for bread on the street. I have two ways to live. I can keep going that champagne life. Or I can say, I just think there are too many people in the world who can't access water yet. They just can't access water. They're living and dying. That was 20 years ago. The stats on being able to access clean water and good sewage is actually going really well. It's going in the right direction. It's reduced now to tens of millions of people. And you can access really good websites and support that to make sure people get clean drinking water and good sewage systems, the two biggest public health needs. But I knew that was another moment of what kind of life am I going to have? The one that says, I'll just buffet myself from the cries of distress. I don't want to know about people who can't access drinking water. That's too much. Or to just... I remember remember the word in my head was, this is obscene. This is actually obscene that we're giving out champagne when people can't have bottles, like their bottles of water. And those are two moments, didn't do anything with them, but they were moments where I realised there are two ways we can do life. And one of them is deeply painful, initially. But I think, and what Jesus is saying is it's actually the gateway to the good life. And the other way appears easier. Just buffet yourself, get your security cameras out, get a nice partner in a nice part of town with nice kids or go to a nice school, and then they'll grow up and they'll have nice partners and nice kids and nice school and we'll all just be nice. We buffet ourselves. There's a brilliant proverb. There's a brilliant Hebrew proverb which says, to the rich, their wealth is their fortified stronghold you just buy your buffering buy that security and jesus is very sharp because he's basically saying that's not real that's not actually the way the world's set up the way the world's set up is everyone's an image bearer everyone's designed to be restored everyone has access to restoration through the death and resurrection of jesus and we get to go to the dark places we get to go to the coal face of the human condition And be light because someone came to us in our darkness. His name was Jesus and all his followers ever since. So we get to access the good life because this is the way the world actually is. We don't live into the teachings of Jesus as if they're true. We live into them because they're true. Because let's look at the actual good life. I'm doing this every time so we can really get a visual. And again, thank you to the Bible Project for this. On the left-hand side is what the Bible calls this evil age. We don't like words like evil. We want to be a few evil people in the world because we can contain that. I can think of a few names of evil people. We'll put them over there. But the rest of us, we're pretty good with our self-lives, planting, buying, selling, thinking about our new kitchen and our partners and our kids what I love about the Bible, it's like it's evil. That is an evil age. It's so much lower than the glorious design that we can all live into. You don't want it, you can't see it, that it isn't evil because you don't have a vision of God the way God has a vision of the new creation, where everyone and everything flourishes all the time, where there's peace, shalom and joy. Compared to that, we're fallen. This is an evil age. And when Jesus came, he inaugurated new creation. He inaugurated communities who would take his teachings seriously throughout the world and show what heaven on earth looks like, light and salt. We're going to come to that. To indicate that in this evil age, we don't have to live out the hopelessness of the self-life. Because essentially that's what you're saying. This is all we've got. We're going to die Let's just put our head in the sand, ignore the cries of the poor and buffer ourselves until heaven help us, it hits us. And he's kind of saying, if you live into the good life, which I'm just about to read his definition, you will be salt and light. You will be the people that actually acknowledge the cries of distress. With this particular issue of the communications of distress, the reason we don't have to listen to them and we can block them out is because they're young people. They're young people. They don't have the voice or the agency or the education maybe yet for some of them. They're young people. We can't, we don't, we can block their cries out. We can silence them. That's what the stabbings are about in Bristol at the moment. That's what the the chronic mental health around digital technology is about. That's what about the the presentations of problems, complex problems like self-harm is about. These are communications of distress. And we can choose to pay attention or we can just buffer, buy our way out, secure our way out, move our way out. It's just a chilling story of a particular church that would praise God on the surface in West Africa, where underneath the African-American slave trade was happening underneath in the attic, in the basement of where the church was worshipping. I am scared to the extent as a church leader, I could go through my entire life and buffet myself claim to follow Jesus but still block out the cries of the distress the poor it is scary you think how could they do that in history it's easy it's easy if you have privilege to stop to block your ears we're scared of the pain so I'm just going to go to the next one because I think this is a real manifesto of hope because once you have someone who says you can face the pain, you know maybe it's because this person, God, is able to bring us through into resurrection and new creation in this life and the next. The reason we can face the pain is because there's hope. It's an act of hope to go to the cold face of humanity, unstop our ears. Unblind our eyes and pay attention to the cries. The good life is found by the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good life is found by those who grieve. For they will be comforted. The good life is found by the humble. For they will inherit the earth. The good life is found by those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. The good life is found by the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. The good life is found by the pure in heart, for they will see God. The good life is found by the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The good life is found by those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good life is found by you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because you have accessed the kingdom of the heavens. And this is my phrase. We are in the prophetic community anticipating the new creation. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We love to decorate the tombs of the righteous. I'm going to say that again. We love to decorate the tombs of the righteous. We love the idea of Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or Dietrich Bonhoeffer who bravely faced the Nazis. We love to decorate the tombs of the righteous. We love the idea of John Wesley, who, unlike the French Revolution, historians say the reason, I think the reason France is the most secular state in the world, one of the most resistant to religion, is because the church, and I count myself as an inheritor, of their church, capital C, was in bed with the aristocracy and ignored the cries of the poor for about a hundred years. I was shocked by how long people who were poor, actually poor, put up with distress until finally an emerging middle class said off with their heads. Marx got his ideas because he saw the poor undealt with by the church that's where he got his ideas. That's why they're viral. They're still viral because there's something in us that says this is wrong and needs to be dealt with. And if we don't step up, firstly, the house of the church of God falls in France without a trace. There are amazing believers there now, but man, it's intense for them. But what happened in Britain at the same time, people, historians credit the movement under John Wesley that reached the coal miners in this community, that reached people so much that domestic violence and alcoholism was reduced in a generation. Literacy was raised and there was an emerging middle class and a peaceful Britain without revolution. You see, if we don't hear the cries of the poor, they're going to keep crying and, and the whole thing comes crashing down. This is our moment. We love to decorate the tombs of the righteous. But we have to say, what's, this is our time. This is our time. And what, what are we doing? What's our response? One of my favorite righteous people I like to decorate the tomb of is a saint called, a monk called Saint Telemachus. 391 AD. So the empire is converted to the Christian faith, There are Christian empires in Rome. Apparently, he goes to stop a gladiatorial fight because there's still, in the amphitheaters, potentially the Colosseum, we're not sure which one, fights where people watch humans kill each other for sport or humans kill animals for sport still going on. And he is so distressed and disturbed, he actually walks into it, tries to break up a gladiatorial fight, is killed in the process, and that Christian emperor, the Christian emperor at the time, Honorius, was so impressed by that courage that he stopped gladiatorial fights from then on. That was the ban. So we love to decorate the tombs of the righteous. The problem is most of them were killed. Not many of them survived. And if they weren't killed, they were hated. Very few popular people who we now put flowers at their graves. But there's another kind of humanity, and this is the good news. This is what we're invited into. This is what's happening amongst us. I'm actually going to say this prophetically over us at Hope, because I think this is who we are, and I think this is where we're going. I also believe it for the Christians in this city in Bristol. It's a beautiful community of faith in this city, connecting in beautiful ways. Jesus is teasing out that in his kingdom there's a new kind of humanity. Where Jesus is King, Lord, Leader, Governor, Prime Minister, and every citizen represents him well in this kingdom in hope, people value brokenness, weakness, humility. we are fully conversant with poverty, grief, and suffering of this evil age. We contend as a prophetic community to engage in the hard work of reconciliation. We are filled with grace and compassion for all people, particularly the most vulnerable and we treat everyone as sacred others to be stewarded, to be served rather than consumed, exploited, or in any way to feed our self-gratifying desires. We honour our own marriage or single state, and we honour the marriage or single state of others. We move through anger at injustice to forgiveness, And ultimately blessing not just our difficult friends and family, but all those who we have been systematically trained to hate and perceive as unclean. We move through to a place of blessing those people by name. We have an intimate relationship with our extremely loving, abundant, generous, powerful, heavenly father. And as a result, we are fully orientated, every thought, word and deed, towards seeking, as in a treasure hunt, his kingdom, his good governance. Fully trusting that all our material needs of food, clothes and money will be met in abundance. As if we are royalty, because as children of the kingdom, we are We love to persevere in secret devotions for an audience of one, reveling in the privilege of partnering with God, in the revolution of self-sacrificial agape love, which is restoring the whole earth. We are absolutely wholehearted. We recognise God is real, God's ways work, and as such both require everything and deliver everything. And when the storms of life come, we stand on the solid rock of reality. That's the kind of humanity that Jesus is birthing. He literally births on the cross. Those are the labour pains of the new creation, of the new humanity. It's for all of us. It's for everyone. We aren't just left with one way to do life, which is the self-protecting strategies anymore. We're left with another option, another invitation. And that's to face and hear the suffering and go there, knowing that's where Jesus is. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. We are salt. If you think... In the ancient world, salt preserved food from going off. I love the idea of scattering salt and flavour. I'm sure that was in it. But imagine a world without fridges or freezers. Salt kept things palatable and healthy. If salt is corrupt, it can no longer be used. That's what Jesus is saying. When corruption comes into the church, we can't do our job We cannot salt the earth. We cannot preserve things from going corrupt if we ourselves are corrupt. And I think this is a moment of reckoning for the church in the West that has really signed up to the good life of the American or the Western dream. In very subtle ways. As we were talking about last week, we may swear a little bit more, less, less, go to church a little bit more but there's no difference. When Mike asks, what's the difference? God will always be restoring the world and the earth and humanity. That's not the issue. The issue he's pointing to is, will we say yes to purity of heart? Or will we collude with corruption? Don't forget, Jesus doesn't talk to everyone. He's talking to the people. He says, who hear my words and put them into practice, you'll stand. The people who hear my words and don't put them into practice will fall. He's calling us to account because we've heard his words. He's very, very fair. He doesn't call people to account who have not heard his words. But once we've heard his words, we're called to account. Light just needs to be itself to be light. But as Dan said so astutely, it does need to be in a dark place to be effective. We don't need to change or conjure up or do anything other than be ourselves. But we do need to be prepared to engage with darkness. Both of these things are extremely protective. Extremely protective. If you imagine a lighthouse... With a, with a ship coming in in a storm, trying to safely harbour. A lighthouse is extremely protective for that ship. If the lighthouse isn't there, the ship just gets to crashed to pieces. If we check out of our responsibility, people really suffer. I love the fact um, the word, the good deeds, works, is actually in Greek, erga. Anyone know a a rowing machine? (laughs) Measured in ergs. It's the works of faith. It's the works of faith that God's created each one of us to do that is our light. We we shine. If you look at the history of church, the things we're most ashamed of, and we, we are still, in a sense, paying a price for, are where people in the name of Jesus did evil works of the flesh. Abuse, exploitation, warfare in the name of Jesus. But the things in church history that we're still proud for, proud of, and still makes the Christian teaching compelling, are people who have done good works of faith, who have mobilised hospitals or education or concern for those that no one else had concern for. That is a distinctive Christian worldview. It's influenced the whole world now. There's an understanding that everyone matters and is valuable it's written into our UN charter but that is a Christian idea it's not an atheistic evolutionary idea and it's not any other religious idea all other religions see poverty as the result of your own failure so there's no need to help the poor apart from philanthropy to be a good person see that everywhere The Christian idea is that everyone's made in the image of God. Everyone needs restoration and we all get to partner with God in bringing that. And that changed the mindset of the whole world on the value of each individual human. So I'm really excited about the AGM. I've been trying to think of a really good, like the annual something Great beginning with G and something really. I can't think of any. <laughs> because we're gonna do a number of things, but one of the things we're gonna do is know your why. We're all a number of people from Hope are gonna share in two minutes their why. I'm just gonna say who they are now. And there are lots of people also who are gonna give a two minute video because either they prefer to do that than say it. Or they can't make tonight so jez is going to do two minutes on why bristol housing festival joe on why streams learning hub sarah why holy squiggles joseph and chloe why ukraine hub sam and dylan why the well susie why papaya rob why new medical approaches david why good faith partnership christy why celebrate recovery claire why food bank Ben and Joe, why initiate? Malcolm, why 11 Life? Rachel, why Bible Book Club? Paul, why Trinitarian Faith Course? Marilyn, why Life Group? Andy, why the workplace? And rather poignantly and movingly, particularly this month, Roger and Angie, why Lee Abbey, Noel West? And we want everyone mobilised knowing their why. Why? Why are we here? What are the good works of faith we're designed to do? It may be you join in with what someone else is doing. This is our boat vision. Or you are called to be a boat and you need other people in with you. And at this point, one more time, I just want to honour those who have taken in and are nurturing through either foster or adoption, children in the care system. That is the deepest and most profound boat and for all parents as well. Or, and other carers looking after young people with additional needs. Those are the most profound boats. We're not putting them up front for obvious reasons. But in some ways that's our heartbeat. The secret places of care. You always know when you're going the extra mile. Because the person can't really say or understand the word thank you. That's how you know. Someone can thank you, Jesus says, even the evil violent, exploitive tax collectors are nice to people who can say thank you. It's the people who don't really know how to. So we just want to honour that community amongst us. You know who you are, you're a boat and you need people with you. And the rest of us to be understanding what our why is. What's our why? What's our good works of faith? What's the light that we're... God's given us to shine and just be and this is the call to action firstly it's really simple we just got to change what we actually believe is real we've just got to ditch the kitchen porn and the, and the nice holidays we've just got to do, we've just got to make peace that is not reality it's flipping furniture that could just break in a flood or a fire like it's temporal It really is. We, I love, you know, it's lovely to be able to host and have a good kitchen. I'm not, you know that the point I'm making is not that. We've got a great story of God giving up that to us. But we didn't look for it. We looked for the kingdom and it came to us. We've got to trust that he's good enough to provide all our needs and reorientate to what we actually believe is real. So the first thing is a repentance. It's a metanoia. What do we actually believe the world is really made of, built of? What's true about the world? Because the kingdom of God, Jesus says, before these teachings, is over here, not over there. The second thing is, and this is so hard for a very sophisticated, 21st century, kind of humanist, practical atheist Christians. (laughs) It's a great phrase, practical atheism is where people call themselves Christians when it comes to the crunch. They worry about money and stuff like everyone else in a sense, they don't know. We really believe in God. The second thing, we will have this massive desire to fix it. We're going to fix it. There's a problem with clean water. There's a problem with the care system. There's a problem with education. There's a problem with young people. We're going to fix it. We have to lay that down. Our visions are too small. Our resources are too weak. We are too limited and the ego is too strong. We have to surrender our desire to fix things. We have to hit, and I've done over the past few years, a massive wall of disappointment, at our own failure. We have to go through that wall that we can't fix it. We have to humble ourselves and grieve and mourn and just make peace. There is a problem out there and we can't fix it. It's the very first thing they learn in the Celebrate Recovery movement. Then after that, we say, but we're still in, we're still in, can you show us what you're doing in the world and where we can join in? It's a lovely transition with parenting or any relationship with young people when they're very little and rightly so, it's absolutely right, they are the centre of their own world and that's right, they ask you for things, you give them things and it's about them And then there's this beautiful moment in all our lives when we grow up and we see our parents or other people differently. And we suddenly, you know, a child might say to a parent, what did you do today? What's your life? What's going on in your life today? And there's this moment where we transition from making God meet all our needs to kind of going, he's doing stuff in the world. He's the light. It's already happening. Where does he want us to join in? Where does he want us to partner with him? And it's so simple, it's so gracious, it's so resourced, it's so relational, it's so easy. It's an easy yoke, an easy burden. So that's the call to action. We repent. Just, just change what we think's real. We surrender our driving desire to fix stuff. And then we choose partnership with Jesus. So this is why this is a long conversation. Because this isn't a, right, what's God said to you today? Now move on. This is a light. Like, what is the calling? What is the light? What is the invitation? What is the burden? What's he putting on each one of us? And we become this community of faith, along with many other brothers and sisters in Bristol and beyond, who roll up our sleeves and in our generation, in our time, we give good account under our watch. And we enter into the life that, that truly is life.
1: Thanks, Alice. Good. Yeah. So as we come into land, um, I'd like us to particularly pray for the city with regards to knife crime right now. Um, I was talking with Marvin on Friday, and, and it does feel like the city's got. To, it's a bit of a tipping point happened, and doesn't it? In terms of, there's just been a lot of incidents recently. There's been some more, more things uh, very recently, and um, Marvin was saying, you know, what can the church do? And I was just thinking about the about about um, salt and and thinking. That there's probably there's probably a bit of salt on pretty much every street in Bristol, right? There's probably a Christian, either in or close to every street in Bristol, Um how can we How can we respond to this? How can we, we can pray and it's important that we do pray but do we also need to do some stuff practically? And I, d- I don't really know what the solution is right now. I, you know, as with the examples that Alice has given, a lot of these things are too big for us to sort of say, okay, let's go and sort this out tomorrow. But, just like all the stories of faith we see through the, the the gospel through the Old Testament and the Gospels, we can partner with God in, in this stuff. So um, I'm starting to have conversations with other church leaders about what how can we as the church respond, and um, uh, just wondering if you know there's probably people here who'd like to be part of that. And I, I think it probably starts with asking with, with praying and asking God what's our strategy, uh, and then is there some action to take. So I'd like to, to pray. We've also been asking God over this last month, what are works of faith that we can do together as uh, as a church community? And I, and I wonder if, if this knife crime epidemic within Bristol is something. Um, so I'd love to pray and uh, do say amen and agree if, if, if you do. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll take this as, a, as an initial thing to respond on.